You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's a huge joy to see everybody this morning. If you're our guest for the first time, we welcome you and let me invite everyone to turn in your copies of God's Word to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah verses 5 through 9, that's in the Old Testament. Uh, If you are a guest this morning, I want to let you know that we're in the middle of a sermon series called Short and Stout, and we're preaching through the five shortest books of the Bible. We're almost there. We're going to finish up in the next few weeks with uh, the end of Obadiah and then move on to a few weeks in Jude before then transitioning back to the Old Testament to Amos. We believe that we should have a well-rounded diet of both the New Testament and the Old Testament, and so we're doing our best to plan that out. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to the book of Obadiah. Uh, If you're like me, in uh, early days after I became a Christian, I didn't become a Christian until I was nearly 20. I was, after that, always really self-conscious whenever we had to turn to an obscure book of the Bible. I was concerned that people were looking at me and would be making fun of me because I didn't know where the books of the Bible were. So I got into the habit where I would do this thing where I would pretend to just flip through, flip through, like I know where I'm going, I know where I'm going. And then if I missed it, I just went, oh, missed it. And then I would go back again trying to find it. Well, if you need help finding it, you can just find Jonah in the Old Testament, go back one book, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Uh, Obadiah, to give a little background as we continue on uh, here, starting in verse 9, is actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. And in fact, this book is so obscure that we don't, uh, we don't even know if Obadiah is the author's real name. Obadiah is a word that means one who serves the Lord or servant of Yahweh. And so we're dealing here for the next few weeks still, we began last week, Uh, with a uh, a book written by an unknown prophet to a minor nation called Edom. And Edom was a minor nation, and yet they were a thorn in the side of God's people in Judah, the people of Israel. And the people of Judah needed what we need today as God's people living today. They needed comfort and they needed assurance. And God used this servant named Obadiah to give them both of those things. Judah, the people of God mentioned here in this book, trace their conflict all the way back to Jacob and Esau, who were ever in conflict. The book is about God's sovereignty, about God's judgments, and about God's triumph for his people. You may remember that Jacob and Esau were brothers and that Esau had sold his birthright. Jacob then received the blessing. Uh, And that is where we hear in other places in the Bible that, that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There was this enmity, there was this warring, and it continues on here as Edom has taken its name from Esau. Jacob became Judah or Israel, and Esau became Edom. Now, this book really serves two purposes for us as God's people today. As it served two purposes for God's people then, it was to comfort them in their trouble and also to be a warning to them that they would not follow suit. Now, I'm going to break a cardinal rule right now of magicians and parents. 
Magicians and parents, as we all know, never reveal their secrets. But I'm going to reveal to you one secret of parenting. And this is it. When my children especially were younger, they, like all children, had the capacity to seriously mistreat each other. And they needed discipline and they needed correction. And I learned from a, a, a much more faithful parent than I am the wisdom of this secret that I'm about to tell you. Uh, and it goes like this. When one child, a brother or sister, had seriously mistreated another, there would at times be an opportunity for me without embarrassing the, the, the child who's mistreating the other to correct them in front of the one who's been mistreated. And it would typically go something like this. I would speak to the one who has mistreated the other child, and I would give an explanation of why that was wrong. And then I would say this, which is what I learned from this other parent. You will not treat my son or my daughter that way again. And then here's the secret. And then I just did this. And I look right at that other child. And what do you think that communicates? It communicates two things. It communicates first, I've got your back. And second, you better never do that. That's what we have in the book of Obadiah for us. We have truth. That's what we need to hear, right? That's, sometimes with these obscure books of the Bible, we, we feel like they're, they're so far off in the past, and they're, they're kind of back in this culture that's difficult to understand, and sometimes the wording is challenging. We have a hard time bridging that gap to, to gain truth for our lives today. Well, we want to understand what Obadiah was saying at this time, and we want to hear what God is saying through him to us now, which is exactly what we find in these verses. This morning, we're going to see from Obadiah that God is faithful and he is faithful to humble, to humble those who do not trust in him. Now, you know that Edom was not trusting in him. They were mistreating his, his chosen people. And as we see today, this book of Obadiah is written about them. It is written as a, a vision about their mistreatment, about their ways, about their false trusts. Even in just these first few verses of Obadiah, listen to them again. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. It's this correction, it's this reproof that communicates to God's people then and God's people now that he has our back. And he gives us a reminder here of how we are not to be living. And so I want to show you three ways that God humbled this minor nation called Edom or Esau and why he humbled them. Here's the first. In this book, at the very beginning, in just verses 5 and 6, we see that God humbles wealth trusters. Those who trust in their wealth or they trust in their high position 
God humbles them. Then we're going to see that God humbles not only wealth trusters, but ally trusters. Those who place their trust in others and their alliance or allegiance with them, that they would come to their defense and they would be their hope when only the Lord himself can be our hope. And then number three, that God humbles self-trusters. He humbles those who trust in themselves, in their own strength, in their own ability, in their own wisdom. Well, let's begin here with just the first. God humbles wealth trusters. We see in verses 5 and 6 that Edom trusted in their elevated geography and in their elevated wealth. You heard it just in those first four verses I read of Obadiah just a moment ago. You, you hear the arrogance of their heart and the deception of their arrogance. As the Lord says, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, in their deception, in their, in their boasting, in their arrogance about their, about their wealth, about their material resources, about their military power, they say in their heart, who will bring me down to the earth? And of course, the answer that has so deceived them is no one. No one can bring us down. We are mighty above all. Who will bring me down to the earth? He says in verse 4, Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, for there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So you see, right from the beginning of these verses, they trusted arrogantly in their riches without any real thought of possible loss. Look at verse 5. The Lord says, If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Now, what the Lord is doing here is he's, he's drawing a distinction. He's drawing a comparison between what would be the normal threats against their wealth, that there could be thieves that would come in at night and they would sneak in and they would steal what they could and then they would sneak out. Or there might be others who would come into their fields, into their vineyards, and they would steal the grapes, and they would take all that they could pile away, and then they would sneak out, hopefully unnoticed. He's saying, these are the kinds of threats you're used to. But the threat that I pose to you as the Lord is one that is thorough. He says, will they not only steal until they've had enough? Yes, they will. If they gather grapes... Will they not leave some gleanings? They'll leave some behind? Yes, they will. But when the Lord comes, he says, Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. Edom or Esau made a critical error in the disposition of their hearts toward God and toward his people. They took and, and co-opted that, that important military principle of, of taking the high ground, and when they did, they placed all of their hope in it. You've probably heard of that before, either in military stories or even in conversations about, about our interactions with each other. If you have a conflict with someone, uh, someone else might boast and say, I'm taking the moral high ground. Well, the high ground is, a, is, a, is the advantageous place to be 
on the battlefield. It's an elevated piece of terrain, a, a hill or a mountain. It's a place where a unit could, could best defend themselves. They could build up their forces, and then they could advance to the next objective. This is what Edom was doing, boasting in their wealth, boasting in the geography of their place, of their ability to, to, stand, over, to stand over Judah. But it was a critical, critical error. Now, I think that you can hear in just these words the way that some serious truth is coming through, down through the ages of history, off the pages of Scripture into our own lives, because this is very ordinary. Sometimes we look at books like Obadiah, and again, we think it's far off, it's hard to understand, it doesn't really make sense, not relative to my life, but in fact, it is. Because what Edom or Esau was doing is exactly what I do. It's exactly what you do. You and I place our trust in other things. And in this case, sometimes we place our trust in our wealth or in our high position, our, our position of superiority or our, uh, our, our elevated status somewhere. And there are two problems. The Bible talks a lot about this because the Bible is about real issues in real lives, real problems, real sinners, dealing with real sin and real temptations. And the Bible talks about the error, the danger of trusting in wealth. And here are two reasons. If you're taking notes, you should jot these down. Make them a matter of prayer in your own life. Examine your life this week to see if there are some ways that, that you need to repent and change, that you need God's grace to work in you and strengthen you, to refine you. Number one, it's foolish to trust in wealth because riches are uncertain. This is why the Apostle Paul, to his spiritual son Timothy, wrote these words in 1 Timothy 6. He said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. That means arrogant. It means they have placed their hope in their riches and therefore, they see their riches as the answer to their problems or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now, when you, when you put it that way, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Who places their hope in the uncertainty of riches? Well, you see, that's the reality, but that's not the way that we see it when we're doing it. We don't see the uncertainty. We only see the riches. That's the, that's the deceitfulness that Edom was, was experiencing. It's the deceitfulness that you and I experience. If we can amass some resources, if we can pack a little money away, if maybe we can get some education or we can get some other, other thing to help us in this life, it's very easy for us to think of them as ultimate, place our hope in them. But what Paul reminds Timothy and Timothy reminds his hearers is this, they are uncertain. You cannot trust in riches, you cannot trust in wealth, but only on God. He says, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We're often looking to our wealth or material resources for the enjoyment of life. We, we think if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that raise, if we could just save up that money for the trip, then, then we could really enjoy our lives. 
If we could just take that equity out of the house, if we could just build up the retirement and finally cash it out, if those CDs and IRAs would finally mature, then, then, then things will be okay. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that only God, because only God is certain. Only God is unchanging. That's the first problem, trusting in riches or wealth. They are uncertain. Just as James says, not to boast about tomorrow. Do you remember that? In James' letter, he writes about those who were around. They were boasting about what they would do tomorrow. They said things like this. Tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and we'll do this and that. We'll buy and sell. All will be well but not seeing the uncertainty of tomorrow. So he corrects them and he says, no, you shouldn't say that. What you should say instead is, if the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. Because ultimately, ultimately is a matter of his will. Riches are uncertain because you don't know what you will do tomorrow. You don't know what other people will do tomorrow. And most importantly, you don't know what God will do tomorrow. So we have this clear warning not to trust in riches because they are uncertain. But also this other reason, this other problem with trusting in wealth is that riches can tempt us to forget God. In fact, this is at the very heart of what Edom was experiencing. Their riches had taken the central place in their hearts. It, they had, those wealth, the wealth and riches had, had ascended to the throne of their hearts and was ruling. It had become their God, and they had forgotten. They had no thought of the true God. We read about this other places in the Bible, like in Proverbs 30. Hear these words about trusting in riches. Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is, that is my portion. Why? In verse 9, that I may not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I may not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Ends that little passage but you hear it in there in verse 9, that I may not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Our first use of this text as we, as we pull this truth down from Ob Obadiah forward in time into our own lives as we see what God is saying to them and to his people is that we're far wiser. If instead of making wealth and riches our hope and our trust, that we make God's promises in Christ our ultimate hope. And it doesn't mean that, that there's anything inherently wrong with riches. The Bible does not say that. It does not say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, does it? Of course not. It says the love of money. So there are ways that we can use wealth. We can use riches, but beware. Beware that they do not become your trust. Don't become a wealth truster become a wealth steward who trusts in the promises of God. That's first. Second, who else does God humble? As we see in this text, God humbles also. What I'm calling here 
ally trusters. This is also what Edom did. They trusted in their allies. They surrounded themselves or insulated themselves with others that they felt could help them and could control their world, could protect their their high status, their, their elevated position on the mountain and maintain their wealth and their riches and their place in the world. So they continued to be the thorn in the side of God's people. But God says here that he humbles ally trusters Edom did just that. They trusted in their allies. But God warned them. He warned them, just as the warning we just heard of the uncertainty of riches, he warned them of what would happen to them, what he would bring upon them as he humbled them. And it was that that he would turn their allies against them. He would turn their allies against them. It's an amazing truth displayed clearly in the word of God from cover to cover is that the God of the universe is ultimately absolutely sovereign. He is in control of all things, of all hearts, even the hearts of kings. He turns them like a, like a stream or a river and he warns them. You are the people who have forgotten me. You have pushed me away. You trust in your allies You oppress and offend and persecute my people. I will humble you. And this is a serious humbling. This is a serious warning for those who may trust in their allies too much. Notice how serious it is as you read in verse 7. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. They will drive them away. And the men at peace with you will deceive you. They'll drive them away. They will deceive them and overpower you. They will overpower them, turn on them. He goes on, he says, they who eat your bread. That's a way of talking about those who are closest to you, those that you most depend upon. They they will set an ambush for you. And then you have probably in your copy of God's word in parentheses, this little There is no understanding in him. We're going to see more of that in just a moment, but that that word understanding, which is synonymous with wisdom, is is also something else that Edom had prided themselves on. So he's saying there's no understanding in him as a way of, of stripping away everything that they had ultimately hoped in. They trust in their wealth. They trust in their allies. But in the end, they have no understanding of the uncertainty of these things. And God uses even those things to humble them. We're being reminded here that the human heart is fickle. It loves what it treasures most, even their allies. But as you and I know from our own experience and everything that we read in the word of God, that the human heart tends to be very fluid. It can change on a dime. You've heard that little saying or cliche before. Maybe a better way to put it is that it can exchange on a dime. That cliche, you know, it it comes back from from the first days of of high-performance cars and planes and boats, and it's a way of talking about their agility, the way that they can change in a moment. If you can turn on something as small as a dime, you can make the sharpest, quickest turn possible, which is, of course, important in, in all of these things. 
It's to change direction quickly. Well, in this case, what happens? In every human heart, there is a propensity to exchange on a dime. Your heart can be changed in just a moment. You, you know this exchange. I know this exchange. You know how quickly your heart and mine can turn on people, can turn on priorities. How fast, what little spark is needed to set that ablaze when someone no longer matches your ultimate commitment or your goal. They're, they're no longer helping you accomplish what you want. Exchange on a dime. And all of a sudden, you're going in a different direction. All of a sudden, you're looking for different allies. Well, this is what would happen to Edom. Their allies, under God's humbling power, would turn on them, would change on them, would exchange them, and would do so in a moment. There's a fascinating, some of you know about this, we've talked about it some before, um, kind of essay by someone named Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers wrote a, it's kind of, kind of difficult to read, but it's packed with truth, and it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You should look it up later. You should Google it and find it. You can find it as a PDF for free and go and read it. And essentially what it is about is how we as Christians change. When something grips your heart and you know that it's wrong and you are just captivated by it, it might be a fear. It might be a desire. It could be some kind of addiction. It could be some kind of regret or worry about the future. Thomas Chalmers says there's only one way to solve that, and it's the biblical way, and it is through the expulsive power of a new affection. It's not enough simply to say no to that thing. That thing, that temptation, that fear, that addiction, that desire, it has to be replaced. It has to be replaced with something stronger, with something new. And of course, the Bible continually holds out that Jesus Christ is the new affection. He is the one who drives out all of these other things as we draw closer and closer and closer to him. This is the way that the human heart changes. You hear the dynamic in it. Strong affections can displace weaker ones and take their place in our hearts. That's a beautiful reality because without that, without God's work through that, None of us would ever change. We would all be stuck, hopelessly stuck in all of our fears and worries and everything else. But here's the warning. Here's the warning from Obadiah. When it comes to trusting in allies, keep in mind that that same dynamic can work against you. It works against us in our own personal lives because even when we are treasuring Christ, uh, our treasure of Christ goes up and down, doesn't it? It goes from hot to maybe lukewarm, sometimes cold, goes up and down. And there are other affections out there. There are other affections in there that are vying for control. And that's why the exchange on a dime is so fast. Because if that desire, that affection for Christ wanes, we start looking elsewhere for someone else, for something else, 
that'll help us, help us reach our goal, help us reach our objective, meet our priorities. Here's the warning to Edom, and here's what happened to them. They trusted in their allies the way that someone should only trust in the Lord. And when newer, stronger affections came to the hearts of those allies, they turned on a dime and they left them. They deceived them. They overpowered them. They ambushed them. This is why it is dangerous to trust in allies. Now, when we say that, hear it again. We're not talking about... um, normal everyday trust, the kind of biblical trust that that we want to earn from one another by our faithfulness or that we want to give to one another as a gift. But this kind of ally trust, it's the ultimate kind of trust. It's the kind of trust that tends to sprout up between best friends or boyfriends or girlfriends or husbands or wives or co-workers, or bosses, or neighbors, when something really serious is on the line. We trust in them the way we should only trust in God. In fact, we trust in them more than God. And in the end, not only are riches uncertain, but allies are uncertain too. Fickle, fickle as can be. Quick to turn. That's why the Bible says in Psalm 118, uh, write this down, go back and look at it this week. The psalmist says it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than even to trust in princes. Again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust people, but we should only trust one another inside our ultimate trust in the Lord that he is the one who is righteous and just, he's the one who can care for us, that even when our allies, even when our friends, even when our fellow church members sin against us, turn against us, walk away from us, that still he will care for us. He, He never changes. There are no new affections to him. There are no powerful desires that can expel his affection for us. And therefore, we are reminded not to be ally trusters. Not in this way, because God would not have it. Instead, second use of our text this morning, write this down, practice it this week, practice it with me. Settle your hope in your ultimate ally who is Christ, and his his ultimate objectives in the world. Settle your hope there. Ask yourself this week before the Lord, are there people in my life that I just trust too much? It's not a statement uh, about them. It's not, we're not saying the thing that we hear like get toxic people out of your life and all of that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about our hearts are just too dependent on this other person to to satisfy me, to be my treasure, because even even allies are uncertain. And we see that God God takes that very seriously, doesn't he? He humbles, humbles ally trusters, just as he did here with Edom. 
and just as he warned his own people not to do and humbled them in gracious and meaningful ways throughout the history of his people. And he continues to do that even in our hearts today. He may be doing that in your heart today. But third and finally, we see from this text that God humbles, perhaps most important, self-trusters. He humbles those who trust in their own wisdom as Edom did, as, as Esau did here. Listen to verse 8. He says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy, serious word, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? You hear it again? Do you hear that, that focus on their elevated position of their arrogance in trusting in their riches, trusting in, in the caves and the rocks that protected them, trusting in their allies, but here, trusting in their wisdom? There's, there's a kind of sarcasm here that God is using. When he says, I will de destroy wise men from Edom, are they really wise? They're really not wise. They think that they're wise. They are displaying anti-wisdom. They are anti-God. They are anti-understanding. And we see again here, we, we take it as a real sobering warning to ourselves that God hates, he hates this kind of thing. He hates self-trust among the people of the world and among his own people when it rears its ugly head from time to time, he hates it. Look at verse 9. If you don't think he hates it, hear this. Then your mighty men, more sarcasm, will be dismayed. That's a word that means shattered, destroyed. Oh, Taman, that's just a synonym for, for Edom. He keeps bringing up different ways that they refer to themselves. He says, so that everyone, whoa, don't miss that. It's one of those ordinary words. You skip right over. Everyone, thorough. He says, every person may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. That is incredibly serious. God takes this seriously. In verse 8, he says that he will destroy wise men. But in reality, there is in the Hebrew of this text, there is no wise men. It's translated that way, but actually it's just wisdom. He will destroy. He takes issue with this kind of wisdom, a kind of self-wisdom. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen in your life and mine? How do we get to a place where we don't really listen to God very much and we think that we know better? We think that we can do the things that only he can do. We think that we can reveal the truth to ourselves. We think that we can predict the future pretty well. But in reality, we can't. How do we get there? How do we become like this, sometimes, self-trusters? Well, the Bible says it's because of sin in our hearts. 
the remaining sin, even as Christians, those who trust in Christ, still have sin in their hearts that God is, is working with and, and working out of us. And one day we will be made perfect, but not in this life, not until we see him face to face in his kingdom. But for now, how does this happen? Well, it happens in Edom and it happens in us the same way. Sin, in its deceit, has co-opted this created desire for wisdom that God has put in us. It's another example of sin taking something good and making it bad. And as a result of that, we become deceived by it. And so we pursue a wisdom of our own. And so it puts us in a place as Christians, because this is continually going on in our hearts, isn't it? Don't you know that? Have you had things this week? You've had certain desires or certain worries and fears, and you know what God says is true, but still you think you, think you know better. It's put us in a place of having to choose, right? We have to choose between the wisdom of man Wisdom that we can try to conjure up in our own hearts and minds through our, our own truth. Sometimes people put it that way. I'm going to live my own truth. We choose between that and the wisdom of God. Now, here's the reality. I don't like it, but it's the reality, and we need to recognize it so that we can, we can deal with it with God's help. This is always happening in your heart. It's always happening in your life and mine. It's always going up and down. It's because of the, the effects of sin. It's because of temptation. It's because of the challenges of this world and, and the way that it pulls us this way and that way. It's always going up and down. In other words, it means that we're all on a kind of spectrum of trusting in God's wisdom. The question is, where are you on the spectrum? At any given moment, where are you in the spectrum and which way are you pushing and that's the way the Bible often talks about the Christian life. <clears throat> it's a pushing. It's a pushing back against the fall, a pushing back against sin. And this is an important place for it to happen. As our hearts desire our own kind of wisdom, we've got to be pushing back. But you need to know where you are. How potent is the wisdom of God in your life right now? In the everyday working out of your life, of your decisions, of your search for wisdom, how potent is it? Now, I've thought about this a lot, and I still don't understand why products like drain cleaner or Tylenol have different levels of potency. Go into the hardware store or go onto Amazon and look for some drain cleaner, which we unfortunately need quite often. You'll find Drano, Drano Max. Drano Max Gel, Drano Industrial Strength, something called Liquid Fire that comes in a bottle inside a sealed bag. I just say, give me the Liquid Fire. Why would I take Drano when I need Liquid Fire? That sounds like it's going to take care of the whole problem. Or Tylenol. Why is there regular strength and extra strength? Just give me the extra strength. You know, that's why my chosen pain relief medicine, I'm not getting any kickback for this, is Excedrin. Because Excedrin only has two things, Excedrin extra strength and Excedrin migraine. And do you know what? 
They're exactly the same. We want the ultimate potency of the wisdom of God. But where are you on the spectrum? I'm going to give you three dots on the spectrum to give us some context. And you think about where where you are, where you are now, where you were this week, where you could be in these coming days. Here's the first. You could be on the spectrum in the place of what I'm going to call arrogant neglectors. Now, that sounds really really harsh, and it is. But sometimes, sometimes that's where I am. Now, of course, that's where where every unbeliever is. Every non-Christian is there. But sometimes, sadly, sometimes that's where I am. And that's why I need the Lord when he's, when he's looking, eat him in the face, to turn and look at me. Don't be like that. It's the place where we are just ignoring the word of God. It's not even on my radar. It's far away. I mean, I'm not reading God's word. I'm, I don't really care what it says because I, I think I can figure this out on my own. That's one place on the spectrum. There's another place on the spectrum, which is probably where most of us find ourselves, which is in the place of opportunistic borrowers. We're not really thoroughly committed to the wisdom of God, but we sure do like to borrow from it. We borrow from it as long as it's going to help us meet our purposes, help us reach our priorities. But this is not real potency. This is not, this is not the real wisdom of God that we're desiring. We're just we're desiring a, a ripoff in its name. Just give me a couple of verses and let me be on my way, as long as those verses will help me get on my way. You know, I once knew a man who knew oh, so much, so much about the Bible. It seemed that all he ever did was read his Bible. He, he, all he ever did was read the Reformers and the Puritans, and he's always reading systematic theology, and he could go on and on and on with his studying. But what I noticed was, even though I'm pretty sure he knew a lot more about the Bible than I did, all he ever really did was argue with me. He was just an opportunistic borrower. That's all he really wanted the Word of God for. In fact, it became so serious in his life that this man spent $35,000 in about two weeks on heroin in a dumpy hotel room. You see, because he was just borrowing. And if something didn't help him along on his path, on his way toward his truth, he wasn't very interested. But what do we want to be instead? There's a third place on the spectrum. This is where we need to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Recognize when you're an opportunistic borrower and push, push to become a sincere listener. A sincere listener. A sincere listener is someone, rather than me defining it, let me let the word of God define it for you, is exactly what you heard earlier in that text of our public reading of scripture. Here are just a few verses from Proverbs chapter two. Listen to it and hear what I'm talking about. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, 
and inclining your heart to understanding. You hear it? You hear a big difference. This is not a borrower. This is not an arrogant person neglecting the truth or the wisdom of God. This is someone who is attentive, inclining ear and heart to understanding. Goes on. Yes, if you call out, it's someone who's crying out, please give this to me. I don't have it on my own. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, like Edom sought and trusted their own riches and wealth, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge or the wisdom of God. We ought not to be self-trusters. And really, all three of these are a way of being self-trusters and not trusting in the Lord. But here's the final use this morning. It's, it's quite simple, though it's something that we're challenged to do and must, must be intentional. Make your ears and your heart attentive to true wisdom. Remember that spectrum. Think about where you are from moment to moment or day to day or when big problems pop up in your life, where are you? Are you just borrowing to get on your way or are you sincerely listening? We know that this begins by faith in Christ. None of us start here. None of us start off life as sincere listeners, no matter how well we're taught, no matter what family we're born into, no matter how how brainy we are because sin has undone us. And therefore, for us to start here and to begin walking in this direction, we begin by repentance and faith in Christ, turning from our sin and placing our trust in Him. And I'm challenging you, I'm calling you not to wait if that's you, but today would be the day of your conversion. And you would trust, 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 not your wealth, not your friends, not yourself, that you would trust Christ and trust him wholeheartedly and then walk with us. Let us know about that. We want to walk with you. We want to help you. We want God to humble us. He's going to keep doing it because he loves us. He's done it even here this morning in many of our hearts, including mine. And I hope that he does it right now as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. Part of what the Lord's Supper is intended to do in our hearts is to minister his grace to us. And part of the ministry of his grace is to humble us. Nothing, nothing says submission to God like the Lord's Supper. It is a recognition of Jesus Christ lived, died, resurrected, that he has given himself on the cross for our sins and we are trusting in him. That's the ultimate submission. And therefore, if you're not someone who has submitted your heart to Christ, just observe today. Pray, ask God to give you everything that you need so that you can trust in him and follow him. And we will be praying for you if we know that that's you. And watch. Watch God work among those who are trusting in him. For the rest of us, we come to this table with our hearts open and submitted to him, saying we don't want to trust in our wealth. We want to steward it. We want to use it for your glory. We don't want to trust in it. We don't want to trust in our friends as good as they are. We want to trust in you. God, help us. Our hearts are deceitful. We don't want to trust in ourselves. We 
Don't want to trust in our wisdom. We need your wisdom. That's what we're saying. So say that today. Say that as you bow your head. You're waiting for others to, to pick up the little cup with, the, with the, the fruit of the vine and the, and, the, and the bread. Pray to God and ask him to help you with that. That's what I'll be doing with you. I'm going to pray for us, and Pastor Kevin's going to come up and, and give us some instructions as we take the Lord's Supper together today. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are true and trustworthy. You are the one who, who humbles. You humble us. You humble even, even your enemies, just as you did in Edom. Well, we know from history that you, in fact, did that, that their complete destruction came about as a result of their trust in wealth or allies or themselves. And we see your fatherly glance over to us as we read those words. We don't want to be like that. We want to trust in you, and so we ask you for your grace today. We ask you for your grace as we take the Lord's Supper together, and we pray that you would help us to cling to you, and that your grace would minister to us and humble us, strengthen us today for the path ahead that we're walking together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.